I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. And welcome to the show. I'm your host for this episode. I'm Dan. And we are taking on a survivor story today of someone who started a relationship when she was a teenager and realized after a while that it wasn't healthy and continued in the relationship. And so often we hear, why did she stay? Why did they not leave? All these questions. And today's survivor is going to get into all of that and how she eventually did leave and bring us hope. So uh, I want to welcome Sally to the show. Sally, thank you for telling your story. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So Sally, tell me a little bit about why you're here and you want to share your story. Let's go with that first and then we'll get into what actually happened, but we'll start maybe with the easy part. Why, why did you want to share your story with our listeners? It's been a long road for me to be able to talk about this. I've been, um, more recently being more vocal about it. So once I, once the relationship ended, I didn't tell anybody about what happened for years. And that was just because I was trying to move on with my life without having to talk about it anymore. Um, but I know now that's not really how trauma works. You have to address it properly. So a couple years later, I started going to trauma therapy and my therapist recommended that I start writing about what happened instead of just coming to talk about it because I was realizing I was having a really hard time verbalizing everything. And writing has always been a great outlet for me. In college, I was a journalism major and a psychology major. So um, I've always kind of been able to express myself through writing much better than talking, I guess. So I started to write about it and I realized that I was, it was easier for me to write about it in third person so that I could kind of detach a little bit from it and to be able to tell the truth instead of like glossing over what had actually happened. So I started writing about it with fake names and it was, it was very, it made it much easier for me. So once I was able to do that, I used that technique, I guess, as a way of kind of piecing together the whole relationship because I had blocked out a lot over the years. I didn't tell anybody, um, which is very common when you are dealing with trauma. So kind of accidentally ended up writing this whole book once I kind of pieced everything together. And it was, it was very helpful for me, but it was also kind of a re-traumatizing experience because, um, like a lot of people with PTSD, something that we can struggle with is um, like obsessing over figuring things out and replaying things in our minds to try to make sense of stuff. And that's kind of what I ended up doing. 
Um, and so this book that was supposed to be a great project for me to heal ended up being not the best thing. So I shelved it for a couple of years. And then in, I think it was November of 2019, this past year, I kind of thought about it again and I was a lot farther along in my healing journey. And so I just decided to post it and see what would happen. I just posted the first chapter randomly on a website called Wattpad, where you can just post anything for free under like a, uh, not like a fake username, but I could just say whatever name I wanted, which was great for me and made me more comfortable. And I started getting really good feedback about it. So that's what I've been doing since then. And I post pretty regularly on there. So because of that, I have felt a lot more... I guess, like empowered. And a lot of my shame has been able to kind of go away because I've been able to interact with other survivors, which has really been the best gift of my journey to tell this story. So that's why more recently I've been able to speak out more and why I wanted to do this too. Well, and thank you for being willing to share and to speak up as we have seen with the show, uh, with this podcast, those survivor stories are very powerful brings the community together and offers hope and inspiration. So that's why we share these stories. Um, so I, I want to understand then your story, Sally. Let's talk a little bit about what that relationship looked like. Um, now, obviously we've changed some names to protect, uh, you know, you as a survivor and to protect your story. So let's, let's talk a little bit about where that, like, like just your story, start where you want to start and let's hear from you as a survivor. So, yeah, so for the sake of the story, I'm going to refer to him as Mark. Um, so he was my first boyfriend, and we started dating when I was 15 years old. And that's important to note just because my age definitely played into my naivety at the time. Um, so I'll just give, I guess, an overall general view of the relationship um, and make it as short as I can. <laughs> um, but when we met, he was actually dating someone else that I knew, which I can get into when we talk about red flags. Um, so we started hanging out over the summer and then we started dating during September of that year. So there were a lot of red flags that I missed, but nothing that like set off alarm bells in my head immediately. Um, we went to different high schools, so we would visit each other on the weekends and that was kind of how our schedule went. About two months into the relationship, I ended up moving to a different high school and this was when I saw his first like jealousy and controlling nature. Um, he really quickly wanted to know everyone that I was talking to and boys specifically. He always asked me where I sat during lunch and who I talked to. Um, and then the first, I guess, incident that happened was he asked to meet my school friends. And I thought that seemed like a way to maybe calm him down and make him trust me if he at least met them. Uh, so he made these plans and I brought him, and when he got there, he was immediately in a horrible mood because he saw that I had invited three of my guy friends. Um, throughout the dinner, he seemed to kind of warm up to them, and I thought everything was fine. When we left, I hugged all my friends goodbye, including my guy friends, and the next day, Mark texted me and said he wanted to break up with me because he felt like I embarrassed him by hugging these other guys. And I went over to his place and was basically just hysterical and just wanted him to forgive me. Um, and he told me that the only way he would do that is if I sent this one guy in particular a text saying, we can't be friends anymore and what you did was really out of line and just blaming him. And he just wanted to see that I was willing to do that 
for his sake. Um, and I was really uncomfortable with it, but he ended up just texting him from my phone anyway. And then it seemed like he was instantly happy. So I was just happy to have the argument be over. So that was kind of the first thing that happened where I definitely realized how jealous he was. But I think that as a young girl, we can see jealousy as a compliment, I guess. But I learned that that's not, it's not a compliment. It's just about control. Um, so yeah, that was the first glimpse of his jealousy. There's a lot of examples. There was one time where we went to a restaurant together and I ordered my food and he thought that I was flirting with the waiter and he like screamed at me in public and made a really big scene about it. So it was a lot of just controlling and emotional abuse for the first part of it. Mm. Um, I don't remember exactly when the physical or sexual abuse began, but I felt like it kind of just started all at once. Um, and he started using sex as a punishment or a way to get me or to get him to forgive me for whatever fight we were having and he would use it against me so um he once asked me for oral sex and i told him i didn't want to do that again i was 15 and this all of these experiences with him are my first sexual experiences ever um, but I didn't want to do it, and he told me that it hurt his feelings, and any girlfriend would be more than willing to do that for their boyfriend. Um, so I agreed to do it, and I did it. And then when it was over, he like held me in place and wouldn't let me move. Um, so I was basically suffocated, and I was like waving my hands to show him that I couldn't breathe. But he didn't care, and he was he did things like that just to show that he had full control over me and it was just to prove his point and it wasn't about love or intimacy it was just about control another thing that he would do a lot is he would spit on me when he was angry and i remember feeling like it was just the most demeaning thing ever like sometimes even worse than any of the physical or sexual abuse um he also was consistently inconsiderate inconsiderate about my health he always saw it as like an inconvenience to him. Uh, one time I had a UTI and I had to take antibiotics for it. And I told him that the doctor said not to have sex because you're not supposed to do that when you have a UTI, but he didn't care and he made me do it anyway. So I got another UTI and it was very painful. Um, and so it was just, again, like all of this was just a control thing and he never let me have my way on anything. Um, so during, as the relationship went on, all of our fights got more and more severe. And I remember when we would argue, I would try to get him to like look at me so I could look him in the eye just because I felt like sometimes it's harder for someone to be mean to you when they're looking you in the eye. That's like what I used to think. And I remember feeling like his eyes would go dark when he was on a rampage. Like I just couldn't find any human emotion in his eyes and he would just like tear apart a room in an argument and he was just insane. Um, so that's how the school year went basically. So then the summertime came and those were like the first, or those were the worst months of my life. Um, the abuse was at an all time high. And this is also when I learned that he had been cheating on me for the first time that I knew of at least. Um, so I got into this writing program that I really wanted to go to and he convinced me not to go because he was going to college in the fall and I wasn't, and he wanted to, I guess, spend time together over the summer. Um, 
so he told me to stay home, but then he got into a program and he went away for two weeks. Um, when he left, I barely heard from him at all. Um, I spent those two weeks just in bed, really upset, and I was really confused. He was just ignoring me for two weeks. When he got home, I tried to see him and it was clearly he didn't want to see me. So I ended up going over to his place on my own. I just showed up and was prepared to kind of ask him what happened. And also I was thinking we would break up just because I was realizing how unhappy I was. So when I got there, he was actually about to walk out the door. Um, and he was dressed really nicely, clearly going out. And I asked where he was going and he told me that he had met a girl during this program. And obviously I was devastated and heartbroken, but he made it about him and said that he had been really confused and I had to understand that, that this was so hard for him. And it's embarrassing that I ever thought that made sense, but I just believed anything that he would tell me. Mm -hmm. So he told me that he needed to figure out this, how he felt about this other girl. And I guess he spent some time with her. So the thing that led me to try to break up to break up with him for the first time was he called me after he saw her and asked me to come over. And when I got there, he immediately started to initiate sex. And again, I still correlated sex with love. So I thought that that meant that he had picked me and didn't care about her anymore. And I was just happy, basically. Um, but in the middle of us having sex, he began to cry and said that he missed the other girl. And I tried to get up and he wouldn't let me. So I had to basically continue letting him have sex with me while he was crying over another girl, which was probably one of the most traumatic and belittling experiences I've ever had. And then when it was over, he physically pushed me out the door and like threw me out of his apartment while I was screaming and crying and I wasn't even dressed yet. And he just like slammed the door in my face. Um, a few days after that, I deleted him off of Facebook because I thought we had broken up at that point. And then he started sending me all these death threats. Um, so that was basically the rest of the summer was just me seeing him because I felt like I had to and him sending me death threats whenever I would ever delete him off of anything or talk about breaking up with him. He would threaten me and himself. Um, he would send me pictures of him harming himself to try to scare me. Um, it was just, it, it was, it's like a blur, but it's also like I can remember certain things. It was just absolute hell basically for that whole summer. And I also, it was taking a really big toll on my physical health and I looked like I had an eating disorder. Um, I lost so much weight when I was dating him because I was constantly anxious and I wasn't even trying to. I just never had an appetite. And I weighed about 90 pounds at the end of our relationship. Um, so the first time that I tried to break up with him was because he insulted my mom, which he had never done before. And he insulted me all the time about like my weight and my skin and my appearance, but he had never said anything about my family. Um, and then he'd said something really nasty about my mom. And I, that was, this was the first time I said, like, we're done. And I, I mean it, this is ridiculous. You can't speak about her that way. And he kind of like pulled me back and started arguing with me about it. And he spit on my face and he was like, you can't just leave me. Um, and I 
kind of just broke loose from his grip and ran away. Um, so the next morning I felt proud of myself for doing that, but then there was like an onslaught of texts waiting for me as he usually did. So it was just this constant cycle. Um, he would tell me he was going to jump off the roof of his building. Um, it was all of these threats. So that was kind of how the summer went. Sally, it sounds incredibly just emotionally taxing and traumatic and I have to imagine that telling the story can't be easy. So uh, again, thank you for that. Um, I'd like to know that. So this was over the course of summer and, and, and a school year and then the summer at mm-hmm. this point, was it did something happen in your mind that you said, I have to get out of this? How, like, how did this end for you? Yeah. So I think I was realizing that I was unhappy, which I had never thought before. Um, because he always said, you know, we're in a rough patch or it's a rocky relationship. So I always just kind of said that to myself, but I was realizing I was unhappy. So once the school year started up again, he was, um, he was in college at this point. So he was out of the state and I kind of felt like I could breathe again. And I remember my mom was, she didn't know what was going on fully because I never wanted to tell anyone I was very defensive of him but she knew something was wrong she's very observant um, and she was very very concerned about me so she told me to join a club at school because I wasn't in any clubs um, and I barely had a social life because he would hate when I would spend time with anyone that wasn't him so I joined the school newspaper which was so fun for me. And that was the first time that I was doing something that I was proud of for myself. And I was putting a lot of work into it. I would stay late at school, a lot working on it. And it was really great. I met some of my best friends through that, that I'm still friends with today. And I just felt like I didn't need him anymore. Like I was outgrowing the need to be super duper like dependent on him. So I felt myself caring less at that point. Um, the day that I ended up finally leaving him was, a, um, it was a day in the middle of October of that year, and my friends invited me to a soccer game. And I had never even been to a sports event for anything for my high school until that point, because I was just in such a bubble with this relationship. Um, and I went to the soccer game, and I remember kind of just sitting back and watching everyone and seeing my friends like laughing and eating popcorn and I was like watching these high school boys play soccer and I had this epiphany moment of realizing that this is what high school kids are supposed to be doing and I realized how out of touch I had become and I was like this is how my days are supposed to be I'm supposed to be enjoying myself and being with friends and you know not feeling like I was going to puke whenever my phone would ring. Mm. And I just realized how ridiculous it all became. And I just feel like I had this moment where my brain just like switched and I was done. And I got off the bleachers of this game and I walked across the soccer field to these bushes and I just texted him and broke up with him. And that was literally it. Um, At that point he had been ignoring me for weeks anyway. And then all of a sudden He texted me back immediately and was calling me and texting me and emailing me and Facebook messaging me. And, you know, he suddenly came back to life from ignoring me. But, and I I remember 
get, he instantly responded when I, the second I sent it. And I remember getting all these messages and I was just like smiling to myself because I realized I didn't care anymore. And up until that point, whenever he would text me, I would be, you know, I would have like debilitating nausea, honestly, whenever I would speak to him at that point. And like, suddenly I just had no physical response to it. And I realized that I was free basically because I didn't care anymore. And at that point, I also had figured that all of his threats, I mean, not all of them, but a lot of them about like the severe ones about him hurting me or, or taking his own life, they weren't happening. And I was learning that it, I wasn't trying to call his bluff to say that, you know, you're not really going to do it. But I realized that it was, it was just a way of getting me to do whatever he wanted. And I was no longer going to allow him to do that. So that's kind of how it ended. I just, something went off in my brain and I was just done basically. And it, and it sounds like the support of friends, even though I, I, I don't hear you saying that you told them what was going on, but just the, the fact that you had friends supporting you and doing things with you, it made you realize that you were loved in the world, that you didn't have to hang your hat on this one person who was treating you this way in the, air quotes, name of love. Um, so the, that supportive network maybe helped. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't tell my friends what was going on. I, I told them some of the stuff towards the end, um, but not about abuse or anything. But again, like I, I didn't tell anybody anything, but I didn't look well either. So people were understanding that something was going on mm -hmm. and yeah, having having a group of friends that didn't need to ask me a million questions, but still was able to see something going wrong and wanting to intervene in any way they could was very helpful. And I just, I realized how, again, I was very out of touch. I never spent time with friends at all. Like it was just, I went to school and I saw him. So it definitely made a big difference once I started to join clubs and I, and I joined multiple clubs after that. I just, I felt like I was re-entering society in a way because I had been so out of touch. Sure. Um, so I'd like to ask about your, your mom too. You mentioned earlier that you spent those two weeks in bed. You obviously yeah. lost a lot of weight. Your health was taking a, a beating on, on this. Um, what, but, but then you also credit your mom with being very observant and caring. I mean, I just like, like what kind of red flag should parents look out for and how should we talk to our sons and daughters about these yeah. things? So my mom would, she was basically dragging me to therapy. Like she was, she was intervening. She was very concerned. And my mom and I are very close. We've always been very close. And so for the time I was with him, it was like suddenly I wanted nothing to do with her. And she was very aware of that. And she was trying, I think she was trying to find the balance of, you know, letting me have my first boyfriend, but also realizing that this wasn't a, a normal relationship. But during that, especially during that summertime, because, you know, I think it's easier to hide it when we have schoolwork and we're at school all day. But over the summer, I really wasn't doing anything. And she was she would like barge into my room and be like, you have to talk to me. She'd be driving me to therapy. So I'm not, I want to make sure that I say like she was doing everything she possibly could to help me. Um, and she was taking me to doctors because again, I had a very noticeable weight loss. Um, so 
there is, but there is only so much parents can do up until their children decide to tell them what's going on. So I actually think that given how much I was trying to shut my mom out of my life, she went above and beyond knowing that I would like hate her in the moment to make sure that she was just doing everything she could to help me. Um, and so I think that as a parent, obviously like I am not a parent, so I, I don't know what it's like to be in that position. Um, but looking back on it, obviously in the moment I thought she was the most annoying person on earth, but now I know that I can't imagine what it was like and how scary it was for her to have to see that and have me not talk to her. And I think just having, doing everything you possibly can is all I think children can ask for. Um, the other thing I think is important is to talk about the school system because, mm -hmm. and I wrote about this in my personal statement for graduate school and now in, I'm now in graduate school. And I talked about how it was very disturbing to me once I realized what had happened to me that I went to school every day of the relationship and never learned anything that made an alarm go off in my head. And I never felt like anything resonated with me to wake me up to what was going on. And I say that I didn't understand what I was going through at the time. And I don't even mean that as like I was in denial. It's just that I literally didn't know that anything was wrong because no one ever told me what was wrong in a relationship. Like I never learned what consent was until I went to college. I never learned what the word abuse meant until I went to college. I started being, becoming a psychology major. And I think that, um, you know, it's, there's this expectation that teachers will teach you academics and parents have to do the rest of the work, but that's, under the assumption that kids tell their parents everything and we don't like everyone knows especially teenagers we don't tell our parents everything if anything so mm. i think that that's a really big gap that i think is missing that could have made a really big difference for me i know it's hard to put that in curriculums i'm sure but even in health classes or something i i think that if i had even learned what consent was in high school um it could have made a very big difference for me. And I mean, that's like, that's a perfect lead into the idea that here at DASIS, we have a healthy relationships program that we go into our community schools to do that with health classes and other, you know, seminars or a table at lunch during teen dating violence awareness month or whatever this is like, that's a big part of what we do in our community. And so hopefully other organizations and communities around the country and around the world are, are willing to do that. Um, it is so important to partner with parents to talk mm -hmm. about these things. And as uncomfortable it is, as it is to talk about things like consent or coercive sex, like that's still assault. It doesn't have to be, you know, in a dark alley from a stranger coming out from behind a bush to be called rape. Mm -hmm. It's still coercive and it's still rape when, when like, as you described Mark telling you that if you don't do this, I'll go somewhere else or all girlfriends do this. And then, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, you know, redetail it, but holding you in place to suffocate you like this, these things are coercive sex and these things are rape. And, and we have to talk about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so you, you believe that helping get these programs into school could be a help then as well. Yeah. yeah. I think that, um, 
I think that if I, again, like if I learned anything that resonated with me, it would have made a really big difference. But also I think that there is a lot of pressure or I guess just responsibility on teaching girls these things. Um, however, it's a joint responsibility with teaching boys these things. And, you know, I could have learned, someone could have sat me down and explained everything wrong with my relationship. And if I, for some reason had, you know, it resonated with me and I would have left him fine. But he, if, if the guys aren't learning anything, then he's going to do it to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is also part of the problem. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we hear girls have to dress a certain way. Like there's dress codes that are specific for girls. Um, you know, something that I do now, which is a result of being traumatized in this relationship is I barely go out without taking like pepper spray with me because I just feel like I have to have a way to protect myself all the time. And I know plenty of girls that do that anyway, without having some reason behind it, but we're just told, you know, keep your car keys close to you, take, you know, um, pepper spray with you. And then, you know, when something does happen to us and we report it, the question is never like, wow, who allowed him to do this? It's always like, well, why did you take so long to say something? Or what was going on when, when the assault happened? You know, like, what were you wearing is always what people say. And, or with, in regards to consent, people ask, well, did you say no? Um, and it's always about, you know, what the victim could have done. And it's not about what the perpetrator should have done. Um, I think that there's a lot of responsibility that needs to be shifted in the education of it too. We're in that fight together. We, <laughs> I personally agree completely. We agree with Dasis. Um, so thank you for being a voice in that. What, what's, what advice do you have for someone listening who says, you know, maybe she or he is a, in a teenage dating relationship or if even if they're in their twenties or thirties or forties, I mean, anyone in a relationship that mirrors this at all, what's, mm -hmm. what's your advice to them? I guess I would say don't do what I did in <laughs> not telling anybody. Uh, like, obviously it's very difficult to tell people and I completely understand that. I just think that, um, I think with my case specifically, I got very lucky in being able to leave the way that I did. I think if I had actually understood the magnitude of it, I probably wouldn't have left because now I know what happens to a lot of girls that try to leave. A lot of them don't even make it out alive. So when you have people that know about it, they can help you leave in a safe way and they can be aware of what's going on. I know that I was lucky to not live with him or, you know, have children with him and I'm completely aware of the position that put me in. And that was, I was very lucky for that. Um, but I know that that's not what everyone deals with. So I think telling someone so that you have a safety net and help when you try to leave is very important. Also, um, being, being proactive in healing correctly is very important. I think, again, I did that wrong too. I think I waited I was just trying to wait until the problem disappeared and I, I didn't realize how, I guess, poorly I was handling it until I started to, to date again. And then I realized that I had a lot of work to do. And 
And then when I realized that I tried to fix everything all at once. So it's like, I was, I didn't do anything for years and I tried to do everything in like one therapy session and was like, okay, I'm healed, but it doesn't work that way. And so I just yeah. think being able to kind of go through the process of healing, um, is it's very difficult and frustrating, but that is the only way to like properly heal and go through the process and move on with your life in the right way. Mm. Great advice, Sally. Very practical, very encouraging. Um, thank you for being willing to share that. Sally, is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to make sure our listeners walk away with from your experience and your story? So again, I, this is something I've been learning more about recently, which is sad because I'm 24 and I feel like this should have been something I knew before this point. Um, but I, I, I think that the issue with people not understanding consent is because the, I guess, like slogan for consent is no means no. Um, but I think that is part of the problem because I think that if a I don't want to say guys because girls can be perpetrators too, but if the perpetrator only waits to hear the word no, then they're probably going to be able to have sex with the person because a lot of times um, victims don't like kick and scream no. They will shut down and be quiet. And that's that's what I was like. I wasn't so much kicking and screaming when my ex-boyfriend was sexually assaulting me. I was just quiet and I wouldn't say anything. And for nice, like quote unquote, normal guys, if there, if a girl is silent, they'll probably stop and say, you know, are you okay? But perpetrators don't do that because they don't think about the other person. So I think that um, kind of reevaluating how we explain consent is very important. Um, because it's not just no, like other things can mean no. No can also be I'm not sure or, or you can change your mind right before and you should be allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. um, no is also when you are having sex to resolve an argument. There are so many things that don't equal consent that I think people don't know enough about. Um, also, like we talked about sexual coercion, I've been learning more about like arousal as a form of sexual assault because people have a natural response to sex. Like your body has a response to it, but that doesn't equal consent. And I've heard multiple stories about, um, especially boyfriends that will get you to have sex in a way that you feel like you're going along with it and you're into it but you're not, and that's not how you get consent out of someone. I think also rape culture and rape jokes are ignored all the time. And, you know, you always hear the expression locker room talk, or it's just, you know, boys being boys. But I think that if you don't establish those boundaries early, the people that make those jokes are the people that are going to harm other people. if They don't understand that what they're joking about is wrong. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll share a statement that my ex-boyfriend said to me that I'll never forget is he said that if I was ever raped, um, again, he didn't consider what he was doing rape, but he said that if I was ever raped, 
that he would not be able to get past it and he would leave me because he would see it as cheating and he wouldn't be able to get over the fact that another man had touched me. And so, you know, cheating, which is purposely acting dishonestly and rape, which by definition is against the person's will, he was, he equated those two in his mind. And obviously that co the comment is disgusting, but I didn't understand like how dangerous that was and how he doesn't understand what consent is because he just sees them both as sex, like they're just equal. And I think that hearing these things and calling people out on it is how you start to, I guess, combat rape culture and mm -hmm. to stop those statements and jokes from allowing to go on because that's not how people learn. And if they don't understand, then that's dangerous because they don't understand boundaries. Right. So. Yeah. No, powerful. Consent has to be an unequivocal yes, not a, uh, like uh, you explained it so well, it, quiet. A, a, a no can be no, obviously. Um, the inability to say no, whether it's through, you know, being drunk or pressure or whatever it is, all of that is non-consent. Um, so yeah, that's, that's an important distinction. Thank you for making that so clear. If, if you could offer a, a light of hope, something, I mean, it sounds like you're in, you're in graduate school, you're going into psychology, you've had some healing and you're on that journey still, you're able to share your story. It sounds like there's a lot of hope in front of you. Yeah. Where do you like, like, where do you find that hope and what can you offer to those listening to find their own hope? Well, I will say that I'm dating someone now, and so it is possible to be able to move on. I thought I was going to just have to be single because I felt like I wasn't able to form any type of healthy relationship. So I guess, and I'm saying that just because I know I've met other people that think the same thing and think that it's never possible to go back to dating again. and. Um, I thought that too. So I think that is hopefully gives people hope that it's possible to move on. Um, I think also looking at like small steps in the right direction as very big accomplishments. I feel like I'm very hard on myself and I'm sure other people are too. And it's very easy to pick apart things that you wish you could do or, um, you know, I know that what a, com a common thought process is, is I just want to be the person I was before the relationship because you feel like it kind of takes part away. It takes part of who you are away from you. Um, and I saw this, I saw this quote recently and I think it said, um, you can't fully appreciate who you are today if you hate what got you here. And I think, and that really resonated with me because I think that is exactly it like hits the nail on the head of how of a proper mindset when going through this, because I feel like for a very long time, I had the mindset of like, I wish I never met him like this. that didn't need to happen to me. This, this was so unfair and it, and it was unfair, but I, I'm so happy and proud of myself for where I am now. And I, and unfortunately that is part of my story, but I wouldn't be here and I probably wouldn't be, on this career path if I hadn't ever met him. And so I think kind of accepting that it's part of your story and using it for good instead of letting it 
instead of, I guess, letting it put you in the mindset of that there's nothing good that can come of it or that it like ruined you as a person because it Mm. definitely didn't. Mm. Uplifting. Thank you. Again, I've I've said it a million times, I feel like in the, in the conversation, um, but my gratitude to you for sharing this um, and for giving that hope, giving the advice uh, and just being a light in this community. Sally, where can listeners go? You, You mentioned earlier the website where you've, kind of written your book, so to speak, in anonymous fashion. Will you give that one more time and maybe how they can find you there just so they can connect and get inspiration and and see where they are with this? Yeah. So the website is called Wattpad. It's W-A-T-T-P-A-D. And my username is um, E underscore writer, um, W-R-I-T-E-R, and then 996 and I also have an Instagram account with the same username that I use to talk about this type of thing. I talk about abuse and mental health and also about the process of writing this book. Um, so they kind of go hand in hand. Okay. So also we're on Instagram for that. Mm-hmm. Sally, once again, thank you so much for being willing to share your story and for being willing to teach and inspire the listeners of I'm not in an abusive relationship. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to I'm not in an abusive relationship. If these stories resonate with you and you need help, please visit our website, dasasmi.org. That's dasasmi.org. Or call our hotline at 800-828-2023. We are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it social media, email, simply telling someone about it, all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan.